from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Today, we're talking about a TV show and a character and an actor making something transformative. I really do believe that TV can be transformative. TV shows can create these worlds where we see things we haven't seen yet and tell us that, yes, those worlds, those realities, they can be, and maybe they already are. TV helped us accept gay people and lesbians and the queer community before they were widely accepted. They introduced us to the idea of single mothers or atypical family structures or black presidents and lots of other things before those things were widely accepted. My guest today is showing us a character that is, for a lot of us, a thing that we've also never seen before, something not yet widely accepted, someone who is pansexual. That guest is Dan Levy. His show is called Shit's Creek. It's on Netflix and Pop TV here on the U.S. and on the CBC in Canada. The character Dan plays, David Rose. David's maybe the first pansexual character I've seen on TV ever. He is attracted to men and to women and trans people and gender fluid people and non-binary people, all kinds of people. Dan made the show Shit's Creek with his father, Eugene Levy. You've probably seen Eugene Levy in movies like American Pie or several Christopher Guest movies, which are all hilarious, talking about Best in Show, Waiting for Guffman, A Mighty Wind. Eugene actually stars on the show with his son, Dan Levy. Anywho, the fifth season of Shit's Creek starts this month. The show is all about this very rich family who all of a sudden is very, very poor. So poor, in fact, they have to live in two adjoined motel rooms in a small town. All right, that's enough to get you started. Here's me talking with Dan Levy in person in L.A. I have to speak to you first about a thing that I saw in your Instagram feed probably like a week or two ago. I, I creep on all of my uh-huh. interviews' Instagrams before the interview because that's I'm where you scared. get the real stuff. Yeah. Um, you were in Vegas recently and you won $3,000 <laughs> on a slot machine? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, a friend of mine and myself collectively did. We were sort of sh- sharing one of those double seat uh, yeah. ch- sort of slot machines where you get two people sitting so yeah. we can both play. Was it a themed machine? Because there's themed machines. A Wheel machines. of Fortune. It's the only, it's the only slot machine uh, I play. There's a Britney Spears machine out there in Vegas. There's a lot of, there's like strange 80s movies that I couldn't remember, <laughs> like, and was reminded because yeah. they have a slot machine. Yeah. Um, sat down at the at the booth and mm-hmm. got a wheel of fortune, <laughs> and I, suddenly it's three thousand bucks. And there's an attendee from the oh, they come up the, to you they, when yeah. you do it. I think <sighs> anything over eleven hundred dollars, someone comes up to you, and you have to like. It, it's like income. Did you feel like the bell of the ball? Were you like model waving to the whole casino? I was stunned. <laughs> My friend was screaming. Yeah. Granted, she had had an edible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like in a state of shock. Yeah. And we ended up going to the the bar at the hotel that we were staying at and blew all the money. <laughs> we got $50 whiskeys on on the rocks, <laughs> celebrated and uh and immediately left Las Vegas. Oh yeah. Cuz oh, yeah. the thing is you can't take that money you want and gamble it again. Oh no, it's not going back into the casino. Are you crazy? That. Yeah. What That's are you going to exactly spend it on? What, well, I have no idea. Life, rent. <laughs> Talking about Vegas, this place mm-hmm. where there's so much money mm-hmm. and so much excess, mm-hmm. it is interesting to think about you in Vegas and compare that experience that you had there to the experience that your character has in mm. Shit's Creek because it's all about having no money. 
having had money, having had money, now and then having, having no none. Money. Yeah, it's such this juxtaposition. Like, how hard is it for you to get in the headspace of the character that you play on that show? This is the son of rich parents who uh-huh. used to be rich. The accountant was doing some screwy stuff. Mm-hmm. They lost the money. They have to live in a mm-hmm. motel. Yeah. How do you get there? Well, I think there's a big difference between... I, because, I, I mean, in my life, I, I have led a comfortable life. My parents uh, have... My dad has managed to succeed at his craft. Um, so, you know, it's not like I was struggling in my life. Mm-hmm. But one thing that... I think the, the big discrepancy between... You know, people who have grown up with families who have money and mm-hmm. what I'm playing on this show is the choice for these parents to give their children everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of where my path really diverted from this character's because, you know, at 15, my parents sort of dropped me off in front of a Gap Kids and said, don't come home until you have a job application. <laughs> So it was not even the real gap. It was no kids. Well, I chose kids because I didn't want to deal with people my own age. I was too anxious at the time. And like, (laughs) I can deal with parents and kids. I don't want to deal with people from my class at school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They were adamant that I earn my own money, Mm -hmm. that I know the value of a dollar, Mm -hmm. that I never take for granted the experiences that happen Mm -hmm. um, in my life. And as Mm -hmm. a result, I have been you know, working from the time it was legal to work um, and have been paying my own way ever since. So, Which is good. Which is how it should be. Yeah. <laughs> but there are so many people out there, families who have, who are drowning in money, who fix problems, who spoil, who... Um, there's just this culture of wealth now where it's almost like the children become status objects for the parents oh yeah so if the children have lots of money and go on expensive vacations and you know are bought expensive homes they are essentially sort of these weird appendages of this which i think is a strange thing and something that i found very fascinating which is why i ended up writing this show um and you wrote it with your dad so like i wrote it with my dad yeah were you inspired by seeing spoiled rich brats in life it was like seven years ago so it was around the peak of the housewives and the kardashians and um, oh it's still peak housewife for sam sanders (laughs) i mean it'll never (laughs) never go away listen it's only on an upward trajectory (laughs) That's that's right um but i remember at the time having such an intimate understanding of how these people lived their lives To the point where I'm like, do I, how, what, this is taking up space in my brain and like, no offense to all of these people, but you know, I think these reality shows really allowed the masses to feel like in a way they're living vicariously through these people or it's aspirational or whatever. And I felt like we had now this whole sort of world to play with, a world that most of us now know exists mm-hmm. and and sort of know the inner workings of. Mm-hmm. So if we were to take advantage of that in terms of just a core premise and say, well, what if one of these families, families who seem to alleviate the problems and the burdens of family drama by just throwing money at issues yeah. and buying gifts as solutions instead of actually sort of working out the guttural sort of like mm-hmm. yeah. day-to-day of, of how it works as a, as a family dynamic... Um, that could be a really interesting sort of world to play with. Yeah. Uh, this family has lost everything, and now they have to just live. 
with the with the basics. Yeah, in this town called Shits Creek, right, which, which was the family bought. My dad on the show bought it for me as a joke because <laughs> of the name. We thought it was very funny. The family had no intention of ever having to move there. Yeah, and um, they had to move there and stay in two adjoining two hotel adjoining rooms. Motel, motel rooms. <laughs> They'd yeah, kill for yes. it to be a hotel room. <laughs> Um, and, you know, for us from the very beginning, it was always uh, intended to be an exploration of family values and mm-hmm. what is really important at the end of the day when all the money is gone and when all the materialism is sort of stripped away, mm-hmm. what's left mm-hmm. and what is what do you really need to get by as a family? And ultimately, I think the answer is love. Always. Always. Always the answer is love. When you, so you went to your dad with the idea. Mm-hmm. Was he like... Or was he like, yeah? Well, f- he was very excited. Okay. He was very excited. Had y'all worked together before? <clears throat> no, I okay. think that's part of the reason. I think growing up uh, uh, in Canada, I got a job at MTV very early on, and I worked there for about eight years. You as were a personality. You hosted I was stuff. a host, yeah. Um, and we ended up doing some stuff here uh, with MTV. We worked for The Hills. We did their, their after, the after show for a show. long time. But it was still based in Canada. Um, and I was hyper sensitive to uh, the label of nepotism Mm. going into that experience that I didn't tell anybody that I was who I was or who my dad was. When you were doing your stuff with MTV? When I was at MTV, at least for the first half, so four years. Really? You think folks knew? Whether they did or didn't, they didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. And I think most of them didn't. Okay. And it allowed me to find my footing mm-hmm. and uh, realize whether I had it or not. And you did. And I, I mean, I did in the sense that I was continually employed. Yeah. So <laughs> which is a I, I wasn't in messing up economy. that bad. Yeah. Um, and then once I felt like I had my footing and I, I had a voice of my own and that people were responding to what I was saying on television mm-hmm. f- for me, mm-hmm. um, I felt m- more comfortable to sort of let him in. Mm-hmm. And we worked a little, we did a few little sketches uh, for MTV at the time. Oh, nice. Um, and then when I came here, having left MTV, I felt like, A, the idea that I was bringing him to him was strong and that I was... I knew what I was talking about, and I felt yeah. like I could well, bring... Well, because you had watched these reality shows and also had after shows about some of these reality shows. Oh, yeah. I mean, if I were to sort of, like, <laughs> connect the dots through my sort of strange, yeah. weird career on television, I'm sure it would... It all sort of led to this. Yeah. Um, but I knew that I could sort of stand my own ground with him mm-hmm. and that I wouldn't be taking advantage or that I wouldn't be sort of coming to him, relying on him to get me work or mm-hmm. get me something. I mean, You could both do the heavy lifting. We could both be in it together. I mean, I'm not going to lie. He definitely helped in terms of opening doors and getting meetings. Yeah. Um, but it was the idea, ultimately. And it was your idea. Um, well, it became our idea, but yeah. it started as mine, sure. Yeah. Um, that that ultimately got us on television. And it really sort of, we, we sat down and, and started talking and, you know, it was an idea that I thought could use his sensibility, his comedic sort of sensibility, what he had brought uh, to the the Christopher Guest movies that he had co-written with Chris. And um, and we started working on it and his process w- was very different than mine. How and so? it was He's incredibly thorough. Hmm. And at the time I didn't have a process, so it was just <laughs> generally different. Yeah. Um, but it was, I mean, working with him behind the scenes and and then on camera has really been the greatest masterclass in comedy and and acting that you can have. I mean, you can't pay for that kind of yeah. uh, experience. Yeah. So 
Uh, yeah, it has not gone. I've not taken a single day for granted. It's good. And so, like, you have this idea. You and your father write this, create this. But then also, your sister is in the show, too. This is like a family <laughs> affair. Yeah. And it, my whole thinking in prep for this interview, I was like, I can't imagine any world in which I went to work every day with a parent and a sibling. I would go It's crazy. wild. Do you like what? it? She Sure. And here's the thing. Even when it, even when things, I mean, working with family, particular. I mean, my sister and I get along really well, and we get to see each other on set, and she'll come in a couple times a week, and that's been great. I mean, working with my dad every day, it's one of those things where you have to almost make a conscious effort to try to react differently Mm -hmm. in situations where there's discrepancies or where you have disagreements, because the reaction would be like, "Ugh, can you just hate you?" But you're on a set um, with, like, other people. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, you have to almost l- draw a line for yourself. Um, but at the end of the day, we both have the same end goal for the show. So all any sort of conflict or discre- discrepancy or, or disagreement will be resolved because whoever has the better idea that serves the show the best will, in a, in a way, win. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also to sort of look back at this from sort of like a... a meta standpoint mm-hmm. to have a a you know six or seven or however long the show goes yeah. to have that kind of chapter of your life that you've gotten to share with your family that's not only in the memory bank but also documented, documented. is uh is something a lot of people don't get it's so, a scrapbook it's a scrapbook i love it so i'll you know tell friends and family what i'm preparing for in the show mm-hmm. everyone that i talk to who i'll, I'll say i'm going to interview you know one of the stars of Shit's creek and they're like oh my god that show like it is <laughs> are you so like the fandom is real like the people that like this show love this show yeah what is what do you think that's about uh, it we're we're lucky i think mm-hmm. we have really passionate mm-hmm. smart mm-hmm. uh caring fans who feel the show in their bones Mm -hmm. i think it's a combination of the show just being quite joyful yeah trying to send a message of love and acceptance and i think that message being sort of put out into the world it's in a way provided some kind of lightness or escape for 21 minutes and 50 seconds or however long you want to binge it for um, a way to sort of take your mind off of what's happening and and lean into joy for a little bit. All right, time for a break. After that break, dear listener, Dan talks about his character's pansexuality and his early work acting in Lifetime movies. BRB. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Discover Card. You check things all the time, like your email or social media. But Discover asks, what about checking something as important as your credit score? Well, Discover makes it quick and easy with their credit scorecard, which is free for everyone, even if you're not a customer. See your FICO credit score and other important credit information. And once you know your score, you should check to see if your current credit card is the best fit for you. Learn more at discover.com slash credit scorecard. Limitations apply. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We do long-form interviews with the people behind the best books, pop culture, journalism, and more, so you can get to know the people whose work you love. You'll find Fresh Air on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I want to dig into your character a little bit. David Rose on the show. Yeah, this is, sweet uh, thing. I know. I really do like him. Just tries his best. Would you like to hang out with him in real life? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> He's a lot. Describe him for folks that haven't watched the show yet. David Rose is a uh, uh, an incredibly privileged uh, um, human being who has never really found his voice. Mm-hmm. And as a result, has sort of created a persona for himself that is uh, dependent on uh, an aesthetic, his clothes, what he wears, an entirely black and white wardrobe of highly architectural clothing. Yes. And a, a just as prickly a personality. Yes. And in moving to the town, David has, in a way, found comfort in the anonymity of living in this place and has allowed himself very, very slowly to open up and reveal his wants and needs to people slowly and carefully and yeah. surely. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I think his he's a pansexual, so he's been able to explore all sides of the community. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in Schitt's Creek. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and has eventually, you know, found love and... I think that has really changed his whole outlook and made him realize that he doesn't have to be as protective, that he, um, that loving someone, that finding love in your family and finding love in a partner can, uh, can allow you to feel safe mm-hmm. in this world. Yeah. I love the way that you handle pansexuality with this character. It is not the central defining mm. thing about David Rose. It's just there. And there's this beautiful moment in which his character comes out to one of his partners as pansexual, Mm. and the word pansexual isn't even used. So, just to be clear, um, I'm a red wine drinker. That's fine. Okay, cool. Uh, I only drink red wine. Okay. And up until last night, I was under the impression that you, too, only drank red wine but i guess i was wrong i see where you're going with this um i do drink red wine but i also drink white wine and i've been known to sample the occasional rosé and a couple summers back i tried a merlot that used to be a chardonnay which got a bit complicated yeah so you're just really open to all wines i like the wine and not the label does that make sense yes it does okay so in that scene with you was uh, the lovely actress Emily Hampshire, uh, who plays Stevie Budd on the show. She's a, a dear friend and uh, and really was quite wonderful in that scene. That's really good. I, was that your idea? Yeah, uh, yeah, I wrote that uh, section. Uh, That's of, great. I, I think it's I don't know what episode it was. It was in the first season. Yeah, it was an analogy that, yeah that came to me that I thought was very much. Uh, a way of communicating uh, his sexuality that, again, didn't come with some kind of lesson or it wasn't heavy-handed. And not academic. I think you hear exactly. the word pansexual and, like, you're like, what What does this mean? Yeah. It's, it sounds harder than it really is. Yeah. And I think the way that you tackled it in the show made it really understandable. Yeah. And it didn't, like, it wasn't you trying to not be that as a character which uh-huh. is saying, let me break this down for you real simple. Exactly. And I think that sexuality right now is in such a wonderful state of flux flux and all we can do 
with one another is try to inform people as to what everything means. There's so many, you know, different terms. There's so many. There's a whole vernacular now that is that we're we're having to sort of understand and it's all for the best. But I think we have to just approach this sort of new territory with Mm -hmm. the idea that everything is as long as you're coming into the conversation with the best of intentions, um, we can't create a judgmental environment. We have to be as open and accepting and malleable when it comes to, okay, this person doesn't quite understand who I am. Yes. I'm going to tell you without preaching, being offended or without, uh, you know, uh, making you feel bad because ultimately we should all be sharing in this, in this process. And when people feel included in the conversation, they're far more willing to cheerlead yeah, I think a lot of people sort of stand on the sidelines because they they they're scared. They don't of, want to get it wrong. Exactly, but I do feel like if we can all come at it from a place of just optimism and the best of intentions. That's the thing. Assuming the best that intentions. can yeah, because the only reason people have had to take these stands is because somewhere down the line, someone decided to define mm-hmm. sexuality as one thing mm-hmm. and then splinter it off into two things. Mm-hmm. You know, if that were never in the equation, if sexuality was just what it was. And it wasn't always a binary thing. We forget We would that, never like, be in this situation yeah. because labels are what have led to bigotry and intolerance and people feeling judged or people being persecuted. It's because someone has labeled someone else as different. Yeah. Did you know from the start that you wanted your character to be pansexual? I did. Why? Um, I hadn't seen uh, pansexuality represented on television. Nor have I. Um, before. I mean, I'm sure it had been, but yeah. I, I hadn't, I wasn't aware. I thought it was interesting territory to explore mm-hmm. um, for the character uh, and for the show. And And you aren't burdening this character with message all caps Mm -hmm. i think a lot of times when you see a first on tv in any capacity there can be a desire Mm -hmm. to have that person be a brand ambassador and have them give respectability to this community or something Uh i don't see that on his character which i I appreciate thanks i mean i think there's there's two ways of going about it and i think it really depends on the message you're trying to send Mm -hmm. and and ultimately on the medium but i think Mm -hmm. for us I guess the the stance that I took was that I'm going to show a life as it is in the world. Mm-hmm. It will not be questioned. Mm-hmm. It will be embraced. Mm-hmm. But there are some shows, I think, that need to be more educational in the way that they approach sexuality because of who they're speaking to or yes. because of what they're saying. That just wasn't ever going to be what this was. There yeah. was going to be no um, homophobia. There was going to be no bigotry. There was going to be no... Um, Magical dream world. <laughs> Listen, and you know, I think there's, a, you know, people have said, well, are you, is that a responsible thing? Hmm. But at the end of the day, it's a choice. It's a choice that I made. Yeah. And it's a choice. It's also that, a fictitious show. You can do it. It's a fictitious show. I can do it. And I also, you know, we've gotten the most incredible feedback from families across the world who hmm. have watched this show. Hmm. And I think because of the fact that they aren't put in a position where they're forced to make a judgment, where uh-huh. parents are accepting of their children, where a small town uh-huh. um, is not raising an eyebrow to two men falling in love with each other. After one of them fell in love with a woman. After one of them has fallen in love yeah. with a woman. It has opened people's eyes and in a way made them look at themselves and say, well, why am I 
having this problem Mm -hmm. when these people don't don't have a problem? problem? Why am I having this conflict with my child when it's so much easier just to love to love? And that has been the feedback that has really been that has brought me to tears because um, for that message to be sort of like going out there into people's homes and for people to be for families to be repairing relationships because of of what they're watching in our show is uh, is truly uh, incredible and and very humbling. Do you hear from pansexual people? Yeah. What do they say? I, a lot of them have just are, are really just excited that there's someone who represents them on TV that mm-hmm. they watch a show mm-hmm. uh, where they can finally turn to their parents and say, "Hey, this look. is it. <laughs> this is who I am." Yes, but yeah, again, the major feedback predominantly over social media is just mm-hmm. that that it's not they're, they're not being taught a lesson. Yeah, that the, the, the people are not. It's not. We're not spoon feeding sexuality yes. to people. So yes. They like that it's sort of casually represented. One thing I noticed about all of the characters is that they have really perfected this sense of comedic timing, which is beautifully on display because you're not doing laugh tracks. You're not killing Mm -hmm. it with like music and scoring. So you'll just like deliver this amazing joke and let it just sit there with you. But my question is like your comedic timing in the show is on the same level as your father's character and he had been, has been doing this stuff for decades. <laughs> what did you learn? I mean, did you learn stuff from him in terms uh, of just like being comedic on screen? Well, first of all, that's a wonderful compliment. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, the character, I don't know where he came from, but okay. he, yeah, it just happened. And it's funny because I was writing those scripts up until the night before we started shooting our very first really? day. And it wasn't until that night that I sat down to learn my lines that I was like, oh, oh, God. <laughs> I, mean, yes. I have a scene with Catherine O'Hara and my dad tomorrow. Yeah. And I don't even, I, this is my first time acting since a Lifetime movie that I did with Misha Barton. Whoa, 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 um, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't just drop that bomb and not let it explode. What listen, was this movie? <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the name. It had you can't something remember to the do, name of your own Lifetime. I, it was, there were two names, one in Canada and one in the in the States. <laughs> it had something, I think one of them was... <sighs> Say it. I think it was called Cyber Stalker. Anyway. Were you the stalker? I mean, yeah. <laughs> it was a very bizarre film. You know I'm going to watch this tonight. You really will regret that. <laughs> <laughs> you will halfway through really wish you had that time of your life back. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, I sort of that showed up on the first day. Yeah. That was we, your experience, whereas, like, your father and Catherine O'Hara had been in improv for a long time, yeah. movies for a long They just had this depth of experience. Of course. And, I mean, they they know what they – I mean, they're they're incredible character actors. And they and know they, each other because they, they know each other. They know each other. They have an innate sort of gift to read a script and to extract a character from it. I had a very loose idea of what I wanted to go in with. Uh, I knew that he was really guarded Mm -hmm. and that he was using sort of a very sort of hard shell to protect himself. Mm -hmm. And when we sat down, I I really do feel like I attribute a lot of him to Catherine and my dad and Annie in those first few scenes where we started to be a family. Did your father give notes on set? It's like, you're not doing like this. I know Well, it's funny because we did shoot a presentation pilot a little bit before we we got the green light to do a series. And Uh I sort of did a version of David then. And he was very soft-spoken. And in the show, he can tend to be a little like, you talk sort of in the back. Like, there's a judgment that exists. (laughs) And I remember my dad sort of coming to me saying, I don't know if the mics are going to pick up that 
kind of voice. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't know anything about mics at the time. Yeah. But there was this essence of, which I love, like, it, almost an essence of, like, Tim Gunn, but even more condescension. Oh, yeah. With, like, a combination of Meryl Streep and Devil Wears Prada. And <laughs> Why is no one ready? Yeah, her whole approach was that, like, really powerful people speak softly to force, force people to, to listen. listen. I love it. So... All right, one more break. When we come back, some stories about the many times Dan interviewed celebrities for MTV, featuring one of my favorite Beyonce stories. All right, BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rothy's. Rothy's is the everyday flat for life on the go that comes in four fashionable styles for women. The flat, the point, the loafer, and the sneaker. Fun designs and patterns while still looking polished and professional, with new colors launched every few weeks. Best of all, Rothy's are made from recycled plastic water bottles and completely machine washable, so you can feel good about wearing them. Go to rothys.com and enter code MINUTE to get your flats and free shipping. What's unique about the human experience, and what do we all have in common? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey through the big ideas, emotions, and discoveries that fill all of us with wonder. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Dan, I want to go back to your work as an MTV host. Do you miss that? No. (laughs) Why not? No. I I never felt comfortable hosting TV. Why not? Never. No, 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 no. Uh, I would re- be really nervous. I, uh, depending on the person who came in, if I really liked them, I would get nervous, and if I really didn't like them, then I would get nervous. Um, yeah, I, it just never felt right. It never. I, I'm a more. I yeah. I yeah. I do love the beauty of never having to show my face. Like one, I'm fidgety. But you're so I'm... good at your job. Uh, your checks in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. I mean, and also I think. You know, I, we were doing this on live TV, and it was yeah. very performative. And there are time constraints, which incredible are Incredible time constraints. Yeah. A lot of, you know, people come in with mandates from publicists where you have to hit X, mm-hmm. Y, and Z. And and also not being able to have a sit down and have a conversation like this. If, if I were given the opportunity to chat like we're chatting now, it would have been a totally different thing. Because yeah. I find this to be very sort of um, fulfilling. But on MTV, it's like... <laughs> You're asking, like, <laughs> so who are you dating? That's amazing. Wow. Whoa. You, your album's great. Um, and it's not great. And it's fine. <laughs> who was your most favorite and least favorite celebrity interview in your time? Or can you say Funnily it? enough, uh, <laughs> the great thing about, actually, I, the great thing about being on MTV is that a lot of people came in. A lot of people came through the doors and... In certain situations, people that you never thought you would have the kind of fan reaction to, you you got. Uh, Tori Spelling came in ah! to the show at one point. Okay. And I am, have been, will always be a 90210 fanatic. All right. And she came on, and for some reason, some kind of repressed something kicked up in me, and... My glasses fogged. I started sweating. I couldn't talk properly. I had no idea what was going on. And the, like, wave of, like, nostalgic fandomonium hit me so intensely that I just fell apart. Was she like, oh, my God. I don't know. 
at the time I thought like that went well. If I were to watch it back, I don't know. I also love that you've coined the word fandomonium. I'm into that. It, did I keep? I feel you like said Us Weekly. Oh, really? Okay. Probably put that out a while ago. I'm but, into it. I'm into um, it. And Adele was a Ooh. great one. But what and level Rihanna of Adele? was a great Wait, one. Wait, stop! Yeah. Twice what? I interviewed Rihanna, yeah. But what level of Rihanna-ness? Was she like as uh, big as she is now? Umbrella era? No, it was, it was oh. like, it was, I, 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 it had been eight years, I think, since I left. Okay. So it was... Early I mean, Rihanna. she was still... A force. There were hits. There were bops. Slaps. Slaps. <laughs> um, she was great. Adele, I had actually seen in London. Okay. Or heard in London. Her first album, 19, had heard it in oh, London. Yeah. Came back, got the job at MTV, heard she was touring with 19 in a very small venue in Toronto, sat my team down at MTV and said, we need to bring her in uh-huh. and we need to have her sing. Uh-huh. And they said, No. Um, because at the time we were only putting on like some 41 and like pop punk stuff and they didn't know what it was. And yeah. I said, okay, you have to trust me on this. I'm She's quitting good. if you don't bring me, bring her in. Give me Adele. She came in, we did the interview. She performed hmm. to a room of like 60 people. Wow. You could hear a pin drop. Wow. It was and I knew in that moment, we all knew in that moment, that she was going to go on to be legendary. And she's a good interview, too. Lovely and humble and completely enthusiastic about her success. Yeah. You know, it's like it doesn't ever feel like she's taken anything for granted. Oh, yeah. And that's the best kind of celebrity. That's I love the, it. you know, people that you can sort of share in their excitement. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's happening. It's big. You got tons of money now. <laughs> what are you going to do with it? Yeah. It's so. also my thing with Adele, who I love. Um, at some point when people rise to prominence on breakup songs and mm-hmm. songs of despair, I feel like personally I want them at some point to make the switch and make an album about being rich and happy and married and having a kid. Maybe that's what ne- the next one is. It better because who like, knows when that next I'm one's like, going to come. Are you happy now, Adele? Probably. You've been very gone happy. from that man for years. She has a kid and yes. a big old house. Yes. She's doing great. I want, uh, you know, like Spirit Fingers Adele next up. Uh huh. Anyway, um, this has been everything I wanted it to be. <laughs> I'm so glad. Uh, I want to close as we started and mm. talk about Las Vegas. Yes. If you could put any artist in a Vegas residency, who would it be? Beyonce. How That's much do you think Beyonce would have to get paid to oh, do a Vegas, Vegas residency? Also, how many shows? Like Jeff Bezos money. <laughs> They'd have to and give her Amazon. And she would be at Caesars Palace. <laughs> For four years. Yes. Coming out with like $400 billion. Oh, totally. Because you know that there's like Beyonce stands that would just go to 15 shows in a row. Me. I would be there. I would be there every weekend. There'd be a shuttle service. Yes. From Los Angeles. Yes. I mean, I I saw her in Atlantic City when she did the residency in Atlantic City. Her best shows are when it's just her. Well, I mi- formation was unfortunately than you missed formation. I missed formation, Girl. and that was the Girl. only Girl. show that I have missed. Girl, formation was beyond. I know. I don't need you to tell me. <laughs> she I walks on water. I watched enough clips <laughs> over Twitter and Instagram and she YouTube. She literally walks on water. I the know show. the water part. I, you know, there's probably a DVD out at this point, and I'll buy it and really regret oh. it. But, um. Even in On the Run 2, where you're only getting half of her. Yes. That half is better than anything else out there. <laughs> yes. And I looked over at one point, and Annie and Noah, who Noah plays my boyfriend on the show, and Annie plays my sister, were like mouths agape <sighs> in a state of just, 
shock. Yeah. Because to watch her perform... It's superhuman. ...is to witness something surreal. I saw her in Baltimore on the Formation Tour, and literally... The, the most beautiful moment that I've ever seen in my musical history. Mm-hmm. So, like, the audience at a Beyonce show is really, you can define it. It is gay men, yep. women. Correct. And women that bring their straight men with them. Yes. And so there was this straight woman with a straight man in front of me. It was a white woman. She's, lived, she's living her life, mm-hmm. loving Beyonce. But the, the man, the husband, is not into it. He's just sitting there drinking his Coors Light. But this was just after Prince had died. So at a certain point, she begins to do a tribute to Prince, and she breaks into this perfect rendition of Purple Rain. And as she's singing Purple Rain, you see the guy be like, oh. Slowly get into yeah. it. And then she hits the chorus. He grabs his chorus light, stands up, and goes, woo! <laughs> and you saw the moment mm-hmm. where, where she he was him. converted. It was the most beautiful thing she I've ever seen. She will get everyone. She, eventually, she'll it's get a song. It's only a matter of time. Yes. Send her to go solve the shutdown. Wow. She could bring folks together. Holy cow. That's a whole other, it's a whole other story other chat. for the next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. Thank you. This was delightful. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my God. Yeah. What a pleasure. Come back for next season, too. Done. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks again to Dan Levy. Seasons one through four of Shit's Creek are on Netflix right now. I've been binging. You should as well. The fifth season of that show starts this month. And listeners, as always, today, tomorrow, any day, share with me the best thing that's happened to you all week. That's for our weekly wrap on Friday. Just record yourself, send the file to me at samsanders at npr.org. You may hear yourself there, in the show, on the radio, all over the place. All right, till then, thanks for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. <laughs> 